Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Your Booked. I'm Daisy Buchanan, author, journalist, and wannabe Poirot, investigating the mysteries of the bookshelves of your favourite writers and their little grey cells. I've yet to unmask any murderers, but who knows what the future holds. My brand new book, The Sisterhood, A Love Letter to the Women Who Shaped Me, is published by Headline, and it's available online and from bookshops across the UK. This is a special episode recorded live at the London Book Fair with the best-selling novelist and screenwriter Deborah Mogok, perhaps best known for Tulip Fever and These Foolish Things, the book that became the basis for The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. We talked about the Mitfords, Deborah adapted Love in a Cold Climate for the screen, great literary loves and the awkwardness of donating books to junk shops only to end up buying them back again. Because this was recorded in front of a live audience at Kensington Olympia, there is some background noise. Hello and welcome to the first ever Your Book Live. Um, I'm Daisy Buchanan, your book inspector. This is an episode with a difference because usually we are in the homes of our authors, nosing through their bookshelves, but today... I am going to ask our fabulous guest to paint the bookshelf for us. Um, we have the fabulous uh, Deborah Mogok, who needs no introduction, but I'm going to try and try my best and do the one that she deserves. Um, Deborah, we just worked out, has written over 20 books, smash hits including Tulip Fever, The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, and uh, to be honest, I could probably fill the podcast just by naming, naming the books. But before we start... I would really like to ask, and we didn't clear this before we had a chat, um, I'd love to talk to you about your new book that's coming out this summer. Uh, what would you like to tell me about it? Well, it's called The Carer, and it's, it's about what it says on the tin, really. It's, it's, it's about a distinguished old professor who is in his 80s and who's middle class and rather um, otherwise occupied children get, get a carer to look after him called Mandy from Solihull. And Mandy shows up in her Fiat Panda with a noddy dog in the back. And the children, who are in their 60s, I suppose, um, they are rather um, snotty about this woman because she's a little bit on the vulgar side. But she rejuvenates this old man hugely because she's fun and she looks after him and she's got a big heart. And 
I'm really trying to play around with middle-class guilt, um, or indeed the guilt of any children with an elderly parent who's ailing and who they're not looking after themselves. But it's also about family secrets because um, things are revealed by this carer, which we, and the, indeed these grown-up children, didn't know had happened. So it sort of releases its secrets slowly. It's, it's, it's a comedy, but it's, it's, it's about something which is rather pertinent to us nowadays because an awful lot of us have old parents who we are trying to get somebody else to look after, to put it crudely. Um, so it's, it's plugging into that. Do you ever think that you stop feeling like a child with your own parents? Because obviously, you know, people say that there are points when that relationship switches over and you who have been cared for become either the carer or the person in charge of their care. But do you think there is always an element of feeling a little bit either deferential or rebellious or cross or confused? I think it doesn't die out. I mean, we were talking earlier about, I know many people of my age um, who are still blithering on about how their father didn't turn up for sports day. Um, and really, <laughs> it's time probably to call an amnesty and give it a rest um, and grow up yourself. So I think, I mean, deferential, I don't think that is a word that applies to people and their parents anymore at all. Um, not my generation, certainly not the generations after, after me. I once asked my children rather pathetically, I said, do you respect me? And they looked at me as if I was completely insane. <laughs> and they said, of course not. And I think, I mean, the relationship with parents and children is so different because there, a lot of us, I mean, I was a sort of single parent. My children have seen me with four different long-term live-in relationships that they've had to cope with, you know, and divorce and God knows what. And often they've had to be the parent and had to look after me sometimes. Or I come back from some disastrous date, you know, they'd be 16 years old and they say, you know, what was it like, mum? And, and, you know, what did he do? All that sort of stuff, as if they were my parent. I mean, everything's turned upside down nowadays. And so I, I've always sort of explored that in my novels because I think that family life is changing so fast that one has to gallop to keep up with it because it's unrecognisable from 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago. Love to come back to families and books and families and life, but first, can you describe your house and where the books are to me? If we were in your sitting room and not this fabulous sitting room with the, um, the fireplace, a lovely the fireplace, the mantelpiece yes. and the candles, yeah. um, what would we see? Where would yes. the books be? I entertain in this room. It's lovely, isn't it? Um, <laughs> No, funnily enough, I haven't got any bookshelves in the sitting room at all. Um, I've got a lot of pictures there, but I've got books everywhere else. And a room without them really does look quite odd. My sitting room, I think, looks a bit arid because I haven't built a bookcase yet. Um, but Is anyway, that something gone, that you plan to do? Yes, one of I'm those do one that. day. Yes, yes, because they're, they're spilling over everywhere else. But the awful thing about them is that most of them are, are a third red. I mean, beside my bed, I've got a huge pile of books which I've started and nearly always not quite ended. Luckily, where I live in Wales, there's a, a junk shop opposite, which is open day and night because the woman who runs it never turns the lights off and never... She'll lock the door, but all the stuff is still under an awning outside. And so I leave books there all the time because I often... I mean, this is an awful thing to say, but quite often, because I write novels myself and other of you who are in the same position... 
I sort of get it with some novelists. I just, I see what they're on about. I can see their trick. And if it's not, not quite that wonderful, I'll just stop because life is too damn short. But the wonderful thing is to read a novelist where I don't start to think that at all because I then read it like somebody who never writes them, just in awe. I mean, I've just read lovely Tessa Hadley, who's a great um, heroine of mine, and she writes, her, her prose is to die for, and I don't know how she does it, and it's, it's heaven. I mean, I wouldn't stop her in a million years. So, so it's half-read. The house is full of half-read books. They're on the stairs. I fall, I skate down them on the stairs. And when I'm <laughs> fed up with them, I'll, I'll put them in this, in this junk shop opposite and sometimes, in fact, pick them out again and go on reading them, um, which is... Oh, gosh, so do you pay for them in the junk shop? You buy back the no, books you've donated? No, I just take donated. them. I'm, sometimes I just take them because she just has them in the street. It's, <laughs> I live in quite an eccentric town Are you town sure in it's Rails. a shop, Deborah? Is I it know. not just someone's house? <laughs> it's, it, I live in this darling little town in Wales called Prestine. It's very Brigadoon there. And, um, it, and it is quite eccentric. And, and this particular place is this, this junk shop. I mean, I'm always buying clothes there and things like that for a quid because she's got rather nice cast-offs. But if people come to dinner and they bring a course, for instance, sometimes they'll borrow a plate from her display outside her <laughs> awning and cook something in it, bring it to supper, we'll eat it, and then they'll wash it up and put it back in her shop. Oh, so, how fabulous. Sorry, it's, it's, it's not at all like where I came. I've only lived there for, for seven years, so I'm in, newly in love with this town, which I've written novels set in. Um, but I come from Camden Town, where you wouldn't, you wouldn't kind of do that in the middle of Camden Town and trust people to bring back plates. <laughs> you did. If you left it out, it would get stolen by an angry fox. Yes, exactly. You would <laughs> use it as a, a weapon. Um, can you remember, when you were a young reader, the very first book that you read that thrilled you, where you thought that it was perhaps a bit illicit, that you had an awareness that a parent or teacher might be a bit cross if they came across you reading it? Well, there was one naughty one, which was called, which was called Modern Marriage and Birth Control. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I found it in my parents' um, room. And I remember, actually, I forgot about this. I just remembered it. I read it with absolute, of course, prurient curiosity. I was 11 or something. And, um, and I then hid it under my pillow. And my mother found it, and she just wrote a note saying, really, exclamation Because <laughs> <laughs> my parents, actually, they were very liberated. They were always walking around the house without any clothes on things. They were both writers, and they went to a very avant-garde, well, fairly avant-garde boarding school called Frencham Heights, which was full of um, refugees from the war and things. And it was quite, uh, they had quite a bohemian attitude to life until they got old and they got very, very right-wing and racist and ghastly. But when they were young, they were very free-spirited. Um, so they'd have books like that. And in fact, my mother had posed for photographs in a sex manual, which um, was passed around That one or a school. different one? Apparently, yes. Not with her head, just her body. But not, not the one that you were reading? No, you not the one You didn't find your mum in the pages? No, that would be weird beyond weird. <laughs> but, but the children's book that I first loved, and I'm sure many people found this, was, was good old Beatrix Potter. And reading the Flopsy Bunnies and reading about soporific lettuces... 
and learning, because she didn't condescend, she was like Richmond Crompton with mm. the lovely William books. She didn't patronise her audience. And um, you would learn these extraordinary grown-up and wonderful words. I mean, soporific. Mm. What a great word. Describes what happens if you eat too much. Because I love the, her savagery. It's this yeah. beautiful world, and we think of it as being something that's almost twee, but the content of the stories is brutal, really. Yeah, they're so not twee. So not twee. I mean, they're very frightening. Of, you know, Tom Kitten and, and the rat and the, the tied-up kitten in the attic. I mean, it's got, it makes airs come up on the back of your neck even now. So many of your readers love you because of the way you write about relationships and the truth of love. Um, What's the first book you read where you were utterly convinced by that romantic relationship? Well, I think it would have to be Pride and Prejudice, which I must have read when I was a teenager, like everybody. And the thing about Jane Austen, um, which, and I adapted Pride and Prejudice as a film with Keira Knightley, so I sort of got to know it. But she understood, and considering, you, you know, she was a, a died a virgin and well, presumably, and didn't have any obvious romantic entanglements, but she understood something which eluded people who were far more experienced in love in that sexual desire is based on friction and on denial and on the fact that you think the other person is ghastly and stuck up and up himself and all these things. And in fact, the readers know long before the, the two young lovers that they're mad for each other. And she understood that. And of course, Pride and Prejudice became the template for rom-coms ever mm. since. Um, and it's just the most wonderful book because she understood about, about sex, let alone it's a wonderful plot as well. It was heaven to adapt because it's a perfect sort of three-act structure. You've got the great turning points coming just at a moment when you think everything's going to be all right and everything is then turned upside down. And, um, and it's funny, of course. Did you always read that in such an analytical and thoughtful way? Or did you feel differently about it during the process of adapting it? I know. Well, that's the interesting thing. I mean, once you're adapting it, you, you do get very analytical. You just have to. So you read it with your, with your screenwriter's hat on. And you don't love it in the same way. Because you don't love it in that wholehearted uncomplicated, uncritical way, you're picking it to pieces and you're having to dismember it, really, and reassemble it as a script. I suppose it's light you know. on magic, isn't it? It's yes. backstage at Disney World. Exactly, exactly. And I did it with Nancy Mitford because we were talking mm. earlier about Nancy Mitford and I think I got the Jane Austen job because Nancy Mitford had a lot in common with her. You know, forensic social comedy, um, you know, so accurate about the upper middle classes or the upper classes, in fact. Um, the countryside, animals, mad fathers, eccentric or eccentric fathers, um, lots of girls, marriage, love. Um, you know, Mit Mitford and Austin do have an awful lot in common. And when I adapted um, Love in a Cold Climate, which was pretty blissful, I must say. Um, That's absolutely was, how Nancy would describe it, I'm sure, as it well. Was, Total bliss. I mean, I'm rather like her in that I would always go over the top and rather annoyingly over-exuberant in my language. But we did, what I did was to conflate love in a cold climate and the pursuit of love and weave them together. And then we got this cast to die for, which was, you know, Alan Bates and Sheila Gish 
And um, I mean, everyone was in it. And the young Rosamund Pike was in it because um, she, she played Fanny. And, uh, you know, it was, it was just, it was a very, very, as Nancy Mitford would say, a heavenly experience. Were you a fan of those books? Had you read them in your youth? Yeah, yeah. I'd read Nancy Mitford. I, I, Jane Austen I liked, but Nancy Mitford I adored. Mm. Um, and the same. She's, she's not quite, yes, I think. But she's not, Nancy Mitford wasn't absolutely the greatest grasper of plot, I would have to say. Um, they do wander off a bit. But that's absolutely fine, because if you're adapting them, you can chop bits and pieces and slot them in and pull bits up and get rid of other bits. You know, you, you, can, you can rearrange the plot. And the, the rest, the language and the characters are so marvellous and so truthful about love. You, you know, Linda's um, adventures through love are just wonderful. And do you remember when, when she, <laughs> she falls in love with the banker, Tony Krozig, mm -hmm. and she said, oh, he's so wonderful because he knows, he knows about everything. <laughs> and Lord Mon, her uncle, says, you know, says, well, that's the trouble, you know. <laughs> it's just, she understands about it all. Something that you and Nancy Mitford and Jane Austen have in common is comic writing. You're very good at telling jokes. Is that something that just comes to you naturally? Do you ever have moments when you don't feel funny? Do you have to craft the joke or do they just spring out of your pen or your hands? Well, I think that it's not so much that. It's more that I think the writing that I like has always has humour in it. Mm. I think that people can conflate serious writing with solemnity, which is so not true. Mm. And writing that takes itself too seriously isn't, doesn't feel truthful to me. I mean, for instance, I'll give you an example. My mother got dementia, and it was just completely ghastly, a black, black, terrible time. But she'd say things like, she said to me once, she said, Debbie, there are two men in my bedroom last night. One of them was under the bed, and the other was in the wardrobe. I've never believed in threesomes, and I'm not going to start now. <laughs> you know, that's life. That's, that's what it's like. You've got stuff like that. Black humor happens. It just happens all the time. And I think that that, that is within good writing. And it, it annoys me. I know Howard Jacobson bangs on about this, and I don't blame him. Since he got the booker, he's shut up. But he, he did bang on about it about the fact that a comic novelist is not taken seriously. I and they should be taken seriously because, because that, that is, you know, it's, well, I, it's life. I think because they're so easy to read and so joyous to read, people sort of assume that they must be quite easy to write when the opposite is true. Yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 it can be the opposite. I mean, I, w I was thinking of that I actually also because I adapted Anne Frank's diary for the BBC. And, you know, that's the diary of a young woman who for, for nearly two years was locked up in this annex, facing death, and in fact died horribly in Bergen-Belsen of typhus. I mean, it's pretty dire, and was terrified for her life all the way through. They all died, except Otto Frank. I mean, ghastly. But if you read her diary, which lots of people have, and when I adapted it, I tried to pull it out, it's full of, of laughter and irony and humor and black humor and it's just it's, everything is there that's why it's a wonderful book and, and her so circumstances don't, don't stop that happening because you can't just spend 24 hours a day um, or 12 hours a day 
being terrified for your life. She's life also comes in. really funny in the way that very, very clever teenage girls are. Yeah. And so often, you know, I think about the way people are so quick to dismiss and trivialize women and trivialize things in domestic setting. But when you think of the the wit and that she had so mm. much sort of quickness and perspective and the, you know, the obsessing over the boys as well mm. and how much that sort of, the, you know, it's a remarkable teenage girl's account when really it's a remarkable account. Mm. Were there ever times when you thought that perhaps you didn't want to, to do that job because it was just so, so dark and so sad or did you relish the challenge of finding the, the joy in something that was a tragedy? Well, it was a challenge because not only is it hugely loved, I mean, Anne Frank's Diary and Pride and Prejudice are the two most loved books in Britain, you know, in our language. So it was challenge. But what I wanted to do was to show her as a normal teenager. The word teenager, I think, was first used in 1942, which was when they were banged up in the attics. People weren't teenagers till then. She was the perfect teenager she was stroppy she was difficult she was quite manipulative she was horrible to her mother mm. um, but she was also lively and fun and interesting and great I while I was writing it I got very friendly with Ava Schloss who um, whose mother married Otto Frank who was the only survivor and Ava who lives in London here she she came to watch it when it was being screened on television with me she's now in her late 80s and she said she never liked Anne Frank at school because Anne was very girly, and Ava Schloss was much more of a tomboy. A Anne Frank was mad, was boy mad, and rather always sort of looking at herself in the mirror and things. And what I wanted to bring was that freshness so that she wasn't sanctified by horribly dying. Because if you sanctify somebody, you don't know them. Mm. And I wanted her to be a teenager, because then teenagers and people watching it will identify with her, and she wouldn't be a creature of history she would be just one of them. And maybe, you know, one thinks of what's happening at the moment, maybe it might help anything like that happening again if people really got under her skin and, made, and felt that she was their friend and that they really felt what she was going through. Because, you know, we're living in slightly dodgy times, I think we might yeah. just say. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We'll be back to you, Deborah, soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a book so valuable to me that I'm tempted to hire a security team to make sure no one sneaks it off my bookcase when I'm not looking. This week it's Black Swans by Eve Babbitts, published by Counterpoint. This is full of beautiful, funny, knowing sentences that made me ache. If you're not already in love with her, Babbitts is about to become your new favourite writer. Her other essay collections are dark, smart, dreamy celebrations of hedonism, but this is a book about sobriety after the party, but it is addictively written. A perfect period piece about Los Angeles and how it exists in our imagination. If you loved Daisy Jones and the Six as I did, this reads like the true life story of it, but there's so much more to it. Babbitt is a diarist as much as a memoirist, a wicked observer, but a generous one. And if you love Craig Brown and Nora Ephron and Dorothy Parker, this is absolutely for you. But Babbitt's has the most resonant, singular voice I've ever had the good fortune to come across. Black Swans was first published in 1993, but the counterpoint reissue is out now. Now back to Deborah. Um, as a teenage reader, we've talked about uh, the Bennett girls and Lizzie and the Mitfords. Who were the characters in books who felt like friends to you, who really, really reached out and you thought if you were real, we would be mates and you understand me? Well, there was only one really, and that was William Brown. William Brown in the William books, who was my total, total mate. And I still feel he's my brother and he was 11. (laughs) I mean, it's mad. I just adored him. I think many people felt that about William Brown because he was, I can't describe, People have described it better than me, but, but, but William Brown felt so terribly human and so real. And I just, I love the way he was a little bit pompous and adventurous and he would get very petulant. And I loved, again, the way that Richmond Crompton, writing about him and the outlaws, used such interesting words. I mean, William would say things testily or he'd, mm. you know, you'd, you'd learn these words. So it, William, William Brown was my sort of, uh, imaginary companion when I was when I was eleven onwards, and as I said, I still I mean it, if I'm feeling really miserable, I'll still read a William book and it'll it'll cheer me up because they are peerlessly peerlessly funny, and again truthful you know funniness is is truthfulness I, in my book. I think it's so interesting that it sounds as though um, William and various Beatrix Potter characters were all part of what planted the seed of you that you were always reading as a writer, even from a very young age. Well, no, actually, it's not true. I didn't... My parents were writers. They were writing lots of books. I didn't want to do what they did. And although I read... I mean, I read Beano and Dandy and Beza and Beatrix Potter and Agatha Christie and William... uh, we, we didn't have young, obviously, we didn't have young teenage fiction in those days at all. And I didn't do any of the fantasy stuff, Tolkien and stuff I didn't like. Um, so I went straight from children's books to sort of Agatha Christie and things who I adored. I didn't, I read them totally as a reader because basically I didn't read much at all. I spent my whole childhood 
with my sister, Alex. I had three sisters, but this particular sister and I fought a lot, um, but we played a lot, and we played cowboys and Indians shooting each other. We were both terrific tomboys. I never had a doll, couldn't stand dolls, didn't like any of that, and I had dinky cars. I played with dinky cars and, and played cowboys and Indians, and it was only when I was in my mid-twenties that I started to write fiction. I, I, I did other things. I was a waitress and worked in publishing and trained as a teacher and things. Did that coincide with you wanting to read more? Or did the writing well, feel quite separate? Well, now that's, that's an interesting question, and I'm sure any writer here or anybody here who writes knows that when you're writing a book, you really can't read anything. Mm. But what I do do, which sort of gets me in the mood or sensitizes me if I'm starting work, is I'll read a really wonderful stylist, like John Updike or Tessa Hadley or somebody. Beryl Bainbridge I adore. Mm. Um, I'll just read a few pages. And that sort of gets your nerve endings going. Because mm. I think that the bad writing desensitizes you. Somebody once asked me to adapt a Barbara Taylor Bradford book. Um, and I opened the book to read it. And I felt literally physically sick. It was so bad. I mean, I couldn't <laughs> read after a page. It was just awful, completely leaden and hopeless. I love this because nobody ever talks about the books they don't like. <laughs> I just couldn't... I mean, cardboard characters, just ghastly. I mean, I couldn't read that, and I certainly couldn't adapt it, because adapting a book, I think you have to adapt a good book, because then the characters mm. have such life in them that you can push them into this mm. other world, the world of a screenplay mm. and drama, because they've already got enough life in them. If they're cardboard characters, mm. they just sort of fall over. You don't know what to do with them. I suppose that's... Um, I think a lot about um, Bridget Jones. I love those books yeah. so much. And I really enjoyed the film and feeling a bit sad that, because there's there so many brilliant moments in the book that I would love to have seen, you know, yeah. more of Julio and her mum and the dramatic thing at the end. But also, Bridget is just so lovable and multidimensional that it's mm. kind of okay that it's just to have her sort of pottering around and falling in love. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's such a real character. And there are people like that from full staff onwards who are so vivid that, you know, full staff could come in here, we know exactly what he'd be like, and we think of him in the present tense. Same with Bridget Jones, or slightly later on in time. <laughs> but they're wonderful, these characters that, that are... that. Um, I mean, for instance, I've just been watching Cold Feet, um, the last series. Mm. Unbelievably brilliant, because those actors have become those characters. They're so subsumed in the characters that they're taking it in directions which... The writing's really good and the plotting's wonderful, but they're, they're doing things in each scene which is profoundly that character and they're just doing it because they're riffing off the character and it's wonderful to watch. If, you're not, if you haven't watched it, watch it on iPlayer. It's almost, you have six days left or something. I Take it from me, it's and really that's good. that's a good advert. Uh, Deborah. I'm <laughs> going to give you 10 million imaginary pounds yeah. and I want you to... Adapt any novel you like. You can cast whoever you like. What would be your dream project that you've not worked on? You'd like okay. To do? Well, I wouldn't need ten million to do it. I'd do it for nothing. I would. Uh, I would adapt Arnold Bennett's The Old Wives' Tale. Ooh. And nobody reads Arnold Bennett anymore. I. I was introduced to him in a very humiliating way, actually, at the Hay Festival. Roy Hattersley and me were up big audience talking about our favorite book, and mine, I think, was Ann Tyler, um, Accidental Tourist. And his 
was Arnold Bennett's The Old Wives' Tale. And I didn't realise, stupidly, that we should have... I should have read his book before we went on stage. <laughs> so I was completely lost. And so... Had he read you? Had he read yes, the entire Yes, he'd read mine. And I just made a complete fool of myself. And afterwards, as we came off the stage, he said, Deborah, you know, his lovely New Yorkshire accent, he made a complete tit of yourself. He said, go off and just buy the book and read it and you'll see what I mean. So I went and bought it. And it's a most wonderful novel. And I would recommend it to anyone. Arnold Bennett was the most loved writer and most famous writer at the turn of the last century. And when he was ill off Baker Street, they laid straw on the road so that the horse's hooves wouldn't make a noise and disturb him. He was a national treasure because he was a fabulous wonderful writing. He wrote a lot of pot boilers, but he wrote some absolute masterpieces. Each one, he wrote two, I think, real masterpieces, um, Old Wives' Tale and Riceman's Steps. And each one coincided with him falling in love with the two women of his life who he fell in love with. So I think he was in a state of heightened everythingness when he wrote them. But they're, they're very bold and modernist. He, his reputation was destroyed by the Bloomsbury's Virginia Woolf uh, sneered at him because he liked money and bought himself a yacht and stuff. But the Bloomsbury's, you know, all had a private income and were very, very snotty, as we know, unbelievably snobbish. And they ruined his reputation because he was a, he's a seriously wonderful writer. And I won't say any more about it except just by the old wives' tale. Terrible title, wonderful novel. Such an interesting class perspective, isn't it? Like, you can have money, but don't talk about it. Don't buy a yacht. I love the idea of him. You're like, yes. I know, I know, this. I know, I know. But I mean, some writers, you know, they, they like a lot of bling and stuff. And why shouldn't they? You just said Arnold Bennett wrote when he fell in love. Um, I know you've spoken before about your own relationships and that you're someone who can talk about falling in love. I it's right. I read an interview where you said that in your your twenties you'd look at a sixty year old and you know this idea of them falling in love with someone else is just sort of baffling. And then as you became a grown up, you're like, no, I see it. When you're when you're uh -huh. falling in love, do you write more or less? Do you know? I think you write better. I I don't write more or less, but I think I think there is something happens. A la Arnold Bennett, because when I wrote this novel Tulip Fever, which was set in Amsterdam in 1636, a period which I knew practically nothing about except from looking at paintings. Um, I wrote that because I was... Um, I'd fallen madly in love with Dutch paintings of that period, that lovely Vermeer period, but also I was, I'd fallen madly in love with a, a young Hungarian painter. Um, just and, and I'd bought this house, and he was doing up the house around me, and at night, we'd go out in my car and raid skips and get old doors and things. And he panelled rooms like lovely Dutch paintings around me as I wrote and made beautiful fireplace from a Vermeer pitch and lit fires while I lay on the floor writing this book. And, he, and every morning, he'd bring me a cappuccino with a little tulip done in the chocolate and things. I mean, the whole thing didn't last. Oh, that's just <laughs> lovely. Too good to last. My heart. But it was, it was jolly. It was unbelievably thrilling and romantic. It was just a lovely period. And, um, and that book just came out of somewhere that I really didn't quite understand. And I was also bereaved at the same time because my previous um, boyfriend, who was 
18 years older than me. This Hungarian was 15 years younger than me. So I was with somebody 18 years older than me. He died of a heart attack in the cinema. Um, watching, we were watching a Brian De Palma film, Carlito's Way. Actually, Brian De Palma, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, and, and I was very bereaved, but I was also fell madly in love very quickly. And people say you shouldn't do, you know, people slightly disapprove of that, but I think that when you're in a very sensitive state, you're very open to emotions, you're very raw, and it happens sometimes. Anyway, both love affairs inspired books. The, 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 the previous one, which was with this cartoonist called Mel Kalman, who was, as I said, much older than me, and so funny that sometimes I literally couldn't walk along the street. I'd have to sit on the pavement because I was laughing so much. <laughs> I mean, unbelievably funny. I wrote a book called The Ex-Wives, um, which was done in a great rush of love for him. Very different sort of book, but it was filled with lots of jokes that I'd nicked from him, actually. Um, he was very sporting about it. <laughs> <laughs> but you can't, write, you can't really read a book when you're writing them. Mm. And so I'm not nearly as well-read as I should be. And so, you know, Daisy asking me these questions about, about what books and this and that. I haven't read nearly as many books as, as most literate people my age because I, I, when I'm writing, I can't read and I'm writing all the time pretty well. Is there a book that you would love to read that you've just not got around to? Well, there are books that, that I've tried to read that I've got around to and I can't. All of Saul Bellow cannot read Sorbello. I can't read him. I think he's totally a man's writer. I can't... I, I, I know no woman who likes Sorbello. Does anyone here a woman like Sorbello? No. Oh, you do. Oh, we have one. We have one. <laughs> what is it that sort of... What well, do you think turns you off? Because it sounds like you've really made an effort to go in and... Every, well, because nearly all the men I've known say... They, they have a certain expression on their face. They get very serious and they say, Debbie, you've got to read Herzog. They all say you've got to read Herzog. And I obediently get the bloody paperback, well-thumbed from my bookshelves, and try again. Cannot get through it. You obviously have. <laughs> Deborah, God loves a trier. As do I. You're going back in. Can I ask, if you were dating in a romantic situation, had a new acquaintance, went to their house, saw books on their shelf, what are the books where you think, hmm, I've really gone off this person? <laughs> what books Jolly turn good you off? question. God. Um, I don't want to diss any of the writers who are here because some <laughs> of them are very well-known bestseller writers, I think. Um, are I'll any you, of them dead? <laughs> okay. I'll tell you what made me fall in love. That's the other way around. Oh, with the, with the person that answer. I'm now married to. In his bookshelves... He had, he had Anne Tyler, he had a Carol Stone, a Carol Shields, I think, um, and he had another writer who I absolutely adored, who has this awful label of slightly a woman's writer, which is a stupid label anyway, and I just thought that was completely brilliant. Um, I think he had a Saul Bellow as well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> But you never know. It might be because someone said, you must read this. And he was exactly. Like, oh, I quite. Exactly. I think it's interesting because it seems really outdated to me to hear men, that it's a big deal for men to read women or some men will say, oh, I wouldn't read a woman, which I find that baffling and a bit of it. It's a, a dinosaur thing to say, but it still exists. It exists. I, um, there was a, a man who um, 
who was selling antiques down the road from where I lived in Camden Town. Very male, very testosterone little medallion, hairy chests, that sort of stuff. Like Ray Winston in, um, in, in that, that film where he has uh, a swimming beast. pool. Sexy Beast. Very like that. And, and, and he said, he was very flirtatious, and, and he said, oh, Deb, what are you writing now? What's the name of your latest book? And I said, it's called Changing Babies, which was, a fact, a sort of play on words, because it was a sort of changing babies. Mm. And, and he recoiled, and he said, oh, I, I, I'd never buy a book called that, he said. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be seen dead with a book called that. And I did see his point, in a way. It was a, it was a title which... I think it wasn't. I think most men wouldn't, wouldn't pick up a book called Changing Babies, unfortunately. So it was my fault for calling it that, really. It's infuriating, but also useful market research, I yes, suppose. Yes, exactly. It was quite useful. <laughs> uh, what was the last book you gave as a gift? I have just given away... Well, in the new Tessa Hadley I've bought as a gift. Did uh, you read it before you wrapped yeah. it up? No, 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 I, no, no, no. I bought a new one. No, no, I wouldn't, because everyone can tell. Anyway, you want to keep them. I think, you, you know, you really... Uh, are you me. a very sort of thoughtful reader, or do you, do you bend back pages? No, I bend back pages. Do you pages. leave things on the floor? I bend back I pages. People tend to be about one thing or the other. They're very particular, or they're not particular. Well, funnily enough, I met somebody once, and he split up from his girlfriend because she discovered that when they moved in together, he put his initials in all his books before he put them on the shelves with hers. Now, that is wrong in several Ooh. ways. One, is jolly sort of anal mm. to put your initials on. And two, it shows so little faith yes. in relationship lasting. It's not romantic at all. It's a literary no. prenup. Yes, exactly. It's a literary prenup. And she really... And it was the end of their relationship, actually. Funnily enough, though, his initials... I won't tell you his name, but his initials were DM. So if I'd got together with him, ah. he would have been <laughs> fine. Oh, you could do that. would be a great way if you were cross at the end, because I think you'll yes. find these are mine. I know, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, I think we're probably running out of time, so I'm going to ask you one last question, yeah. which is, if you could only have one book in your house, what would it be? Okay, it can't be one. It's got to be The Siege of Krishnapur by J.G. Farrell. Has anyone read it? No. One of the best books of all time. I could read that over and over again. Siege of Krishnapur, obviously Middlemarch. Got to have Middlemarch. I'd like to have the old wives tell. Can I have three? Yes. I thought you said one, thinking I'd let you go up to five. Okay. Then I can have the accidental tourists, which I adore. But it hasn't worn. And Tyler, I've gone slightly off. So that maybe not that one. She's got a little bit. I love her, but she's, I think, slightly. Anyway. Um, those three, Siege of Krishnapur, Middlemarch, obviously, um, and Old Wives' Tale. Perfect. Deborah, it has been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you so much. <laughs> Maybe one day I would love to come to Wales and look at your actual shelves and meet this woman who runs the junk shop because yes. I'm intrigued. Do. Thank you. We have an enormous Thank round you. of applause. The fabulous Deborah Muller. <laughs> Thank you. Thank Thank you. <laughs> Huge thanks to Deborah Mogark and to the London Book Fair for hosting us. Her brand new book, The Carer, is out in July, published by Tinder, and it's available for pre-order now. Do go and binge on her back catalogue if you like stories of love, hope and humanity, or anything with jokes in it. 
I'm Daisy Buchanan. Thank you so much for joining me for our paperback odyssey. You can find me on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at the Daisy B. Say hello, suggest some guests and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acars.com slash booked, for more information about our guest and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, please email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people to find the podcast. I'll see you next time. For now, here's a message from Saul Bellow. People can lose their lives in libraries. They ought to be warned. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.